Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have arguably the best keyboardist in rock music history, Keith Emerson. At the time of this interview in 1992, Emerson was 48 years old and was embarking on a reunion tour with his old bandmates, Greg Lake and Carl Palmer. In the interview, Keith talks about how him and his band came to play pictures at an exhibition, the stigma of being a keyboardist, and his belief that ELP was not a rock band. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared them to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And God God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line. The True Story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hi, Mark. It's Keith Emerson. Hi, Keith. How are you? All right. Have you guys started touring already, or are you just in and getting ready? Well, we're in Philadelphia. We're setting up for the pre-production here. So you don't know what kind of crowds are coming out yet to see you? Uh, no, but we've been pretty impressed by the current results anyway. I wanted to uh, start out by asking you about the technology and how it's changed. Um, I remember seeing you guys in the in the 70s, and uh, I think your synthesizer looked like kind of a, a giant telephone yeah. board with all the patch cords and everything. And uh, I still have that. Do you still have <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, are you still using it? Yes. Oh, uh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Why is that? It's become part of me now. I mean, how could I not use it? Do you know? <laughs> well, uh, what else are you using? Has, has the technology changed greatly for you? It's changed a, a lot to allow me to use the, the instruments that, that I've always loved in the past and link them with what I love about the, the latest modular things which I have. So, I mean, there's a Hammond organ there, which is midded, and can play whatever I decide it can play. It doesn't just have to play the Hammond, you know. Are, are, you, are you pleased with the way the technology has grown? I mean, has it, has it grown to fit somebody like you? I am. I, I thought in a way it would make my job easier, but um, when you suddenly realize that with all these things at your fingertips and all these possibilities uh, are there, you tend to sort of bite off more than you can chew, and, uh, you know, and, it, and it's still hard. You know, you think that maybe it's going to simplify your job at the end of the day, but it doesn't. Your job is still 
it's, it's still just as hard. But I think I think the the sound quality that that, that comes out is is, uh, is is unbelievable. Well, I guess you you don't know if it's workable on stage at this point yet, do you? I, I, I'm saying you don't know whether the new technology or, or the new pieces that you're working are, are comfortable for you on stage yet, right? I mean, it's... it's well, um, I, I'm pretty well comfortable with them at the moment. In fact, really what I'm doing at the moment is, is choreographing my moves between all the keyboards. It's not just a question of playing, it's, it's getting to sort of learn what keyboard is, is doing what at one precise time. They're like a ballet dancer's movements. <laughs> Tell me about the reunion. Why did it feel right to get back together after so many years? I think we'd all gone through our period of experimentation and uh, had the wind taken out of our sails, perhaps in some way or another. You know, it's, it's not an easy job for a keyboard player that doesn't sing to get some other format together, because if you, what, what I was finding, whatever singer I did find was always being compared to Greg. Whatever drummer I did work with in the past was always compared to Carl. And at the end of the day, if you're writing and composing, you want people to hear your music, you know? The outcome of what, how we got back together was I was asked to do some tracks for a movie and they wanted to use Greg and Carl as well. So it gave us a good uh, opportunity to listen to what each other had been doing, um, writing. We swapped ideas and probably did a, uh, about five or six tracks, which Victory Records got to hear. And we were offered a... Uh, you know, a record deal. When people, we were, we were working with other people and they were constantly compared to uh, to Greg and Carl, did that get frustrating for you? Were you working with anybody who, who you thought, boy, this is really it, and people would just say, geez, well, it's not Emerson Lake and Palmer. Yes, it was it was frustrating. I think that, that if I'd have stuck it out, it might have come to some fruition. But, you know, I know that when Phil Collins went and did his solo thing, with Genesis, it took him a good two years. But Phil Collins sings, and exactly the same thing for Sting when he left the police. It took him a long time too. But there again, you're dealing with singers, you're not dealing with instrumentalists. I mean, another thing is it's easier for a guitar player to get a solo deal than it is for keyboard players. Can, um, can you put your finger on why that is? I mean, here you are, and, and you know, maybe the, the best keyboard player ever to come along in rock music. And, you know, why why would people overlook you? I think it's still the stigma attached to keyboards, that uh, it's it's still not a guitar. And I, I think that in the age of corporate rock and roll, they look at a keyboard and they say, no, this still doesn't have much of a place in, in this business. I, I think there's still that stigma attached to the keyboards. It tends to belong more to jazz and to classical than it does to rock and roll. People just haven't guys that sit behind their desks in record companies, I just don't think they've got any understanding. <laughs> well, uh, but, you know, I mean, it comes from experience. Whenever I've met any of these record executives, the only thing they remember is that what they thought was great was me spinning around on the piano. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I must admit I enjoyed that myself. But, uh, well, I enjoyed it too, but, you know, <laughs> but, but there were... I, I wrote a few tunes in my time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, yeah, but there was so much more to it than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, classical, uh, and I guess, you know, you guys were kind of the, the forerunners of, or the, the greatest practitioners of what uh, became known as classical rock. Um, yeah. Well, I think if I can sort of develop what I just said there, I mean, okay. if you look at the saxophone as an instrument, I mean, the, the weird thing about it is you can't imagine that the saxophone 
is actually used in classical music. You see, that, that, that's really what I'm trying to get at. But when you see a sax player, you immediately go, oh, jazz, right? If you put the, the saxophone in a classical orchestra, you go, no, you can't do that. And I think the keyboards have got that same sort of stigma. It's like, yeah, keyboards are all right in a jazz group or in a cocktail lounge, but in rock and roll, it, it's not there. Guitars are rock and roll. I disagree, you know, but a uh, bit of a heavy job on my hands to, to, to tell him otherwise. I, I just remember when, when you guys were very prominent and uh, Yes was very prominent. You know, we spent a lot of time, my friends and us would spend a lot of time talking about, you know, comparing you and Wakeman and, you know, the merits of both and, and that kind of thing. We never thought anything, uh, you know, that keyboards didn't belong in rock and roll. But, yeah. Uh, then again, we didn't run record companies. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, did you ever feel any kind of competition like that uh, between you and Rick Wakeman or anybody else who was prominent at that time? I think I was aware of the fact that there were other keyboard players that figured they were being competitive with me, but I, uh, only what I read in certain musical publications. I, I don't know whether certain keyboard players were, were misquoted or, or what, but uh, when you read something by a keyboard player and when he's asked if he's actually listened to, to me, and he's denied that, and he's gone on the stage and he's wearing capes and he's playing the organ either side, you, you go, come on, man, you know, <laughs> you've got to see that. Please, do me a favor. Uh, that doesn't get to me, I just feel it's pretty sad. I think they just, why, why don't they be honest and say, yeah, they have heard it, or they, they, they don't like it, or, or, or what, you know. But uh, to, to actually, deny my mere existence uh, I've uh, got a bit peed off about that. In making the new record how much did you think about balancing what the old ELP fans would want with what the, with the need to sound contemporary? No because I think we could only do what, what we feel comfortable with doing and with the three of us we tend to throw all the ideas into, into this melting pot. I think at the beginning I was trying to become more contemporary with my musical ideas with Greg, but at the end of the day, Greg still has to sing it, and he still has to feel comfortable with it. And I didn't really want to get into this whole sort of ego-challenging situation and say, look, you, we really must try this, push, 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 you know? Because you can't push Greg at all, and uh, it's best not to. He, he, he's much better, if you leave him on his own, to do what he feels like he can, feel good at and, and, and play what he really wants to play so I think we left it at that we, I just said okay well if you don't like that what about this you know, and we became more relaxed and a lot of on this Black Moon album was composed in the studio amongst the three of us rather than as it used to be in the 70s I would write a lot of material on my own and then arrange a rehearsal with the band and teach it to them and then they'd, put, they'd pull it apart but it was like, uh, it was very hard in those 70s days to uh, having spent a lot of time writing and then, then you take it to them and they completely pull it apart or you think you've written the best thing you've ever done and it's all changed, you know. So I wasn't about to get into that this time. Over the years, um, you guys have taken your, your share of uh, shots from critics for being, you know, whatever, ponderous, excessive, whatever words they want to use. But, uh, but I'm thinking it must have been very different on the inside. And I'm wondering, were you thinking as you were creating the music that, you know, you're basically trying to create uh, some sort of symphonies for rock fans? 
In the 70s? Yeah. Yeah. See, the thing with keyboards is that they don't resonate like a guitar resonates. And playing hooks on a guitar is... It, I mean, it, they sound good doing that. You can play hooks on keyboards, obviously. But the guitar has this ringing thing. So to compensate for that, the volume of the sheer volume of uh, sound that the guitar can make, I tend to compensate with getting sheer volume of musical ideas. All the time, the textures were changing uh, to maintain the interest. And also, I think that the reason why ELP's music was so eclectic was that we just didn't want to stick to one particular style. We were full of surprises, musical surprises. Did you feel like they were symphonies or symphonic or that it was only marginally related to rock music? I never felt ELP being a rock band, per se, you know. We, we played in the theater of rock and we used a lot of the vehicles to, to do that, but I think we're still very much the same same way really we just uh, do what we what we feel we have to do and uh, I do like the symphonic form when it comes to writing conceptual pieces but I don't use it the same way as, as the classical musicians use I, I like a melody to develop and go through modulation I like exploring different ways of, uh, of playing a theme very much the same way as jazz musicians like to take old songs and put some different chord shapes behind them and you listen to it in a completely different way you know i find that fascinating i always um felt that emerson lake and palmer was was a teaching band in a, in a sense that i learned a lot about music not just your music but other people's music by what you did i mean pictures at an exhibition for example i mean i listen to that then i you know go back and pick up uh, mazorsky and, and see what you know how it compared yeah, well, I mean, that wasn't our intention, but uh, the reason why ELP did that, really, is because we actually liked the tunes. I had, you know, it's very, very simple, really. We just, I had never heard pictures of an exhibition until I went to a, uh, a concert hall in England, and that was on the agenda for the orchestra to play, and I was, I really liked, it, it's full of great melodies, and I wanted to play those. And so did Greg and Carl, so that was really the reason. It wasn't a question of, Gosh, we're going to do this, and uh, well, I think, uh, it, yeah, in a way, it was like uh, we were saying to the audience, "Have you heard this piece?" And uh, I'm sure a lot of them probably had, but I hadn't. So that was uh, that was interesting. Yeah. How are we doing time-wise? You we're still fine. Have Actually, Mark, hang on, I've got something at the door. Can you hold? Okay, sure. Okay. Okay, good. Now, I'm, well, for, I can tell you that I don't think I knew anybody who knew that piece of music at the time. So it was oh, right. a learning experience for all of yeah. us. But, uh, um, you know, uh, and this is just like a, a minor trivial thing, but at the beginning of the record, uh, he says, it's Greg, I guess, saying, we're going to give you pictures at an exhibition. And the audience that's goes, me. oh, that's you, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and, and the audience goes nuts. How did they know that, that you were going to do that? Had you been doing that piece? Uh, we, we had, actually, right from our first concert, uh, which was the Isle of Wight Festival. Uh, we, we finished off the Isle of Wight Festival with Pictures Exhibition, uh, plus the fact that we had cannons on stage and we blew the place up. Yeah. So all of this got around. It, it, it was becoming a uh, uh, signature tune sort of thing, or, or, or one of them. 
and uh, we, we'd gone up and down England playing it and the fans had, uh, had followed us and when we recorded it at the Newcastle City Hall I think it's only about 2,000 seater and Newcastle was a very, very big territory for us when I had the band called The Nice we, we always went down very well in Newcastle so I think it's one of the reasons why we chose uh, uh, Newcastle to, to record because they were a very responsive crowd all right, so here you were, and you're, you're teaching a lot of people about music, whether it's intentional or not, and there were other groups following your lead, and, and people were learning about music, I think, in a, in a whole other way that doesn't exist anymore. What happened to, I guess, what we used to call classical rock? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, there was a band called Sky that had a pretty good attempt at doing it, I don't know, I think there's been a swing away from melody with, with the record companies changing. They want a fast turnover. I, I, I think it's, it's damaged music considerably. It really has. I, I, I hope the wheels turn full circle now, or it's going to turn full circle. Because I, I, I think people do want to listen to, to a melody. majority of the stuff that you, you listen to on contemporary hit radio not a lot of melody there, really. It's it's, it's almost like uh, the younger generation is saying, "Oh no, if it's got a song, you know, you can't sing it. You've got to, it's got to have a rhythm. You've got to dance to it." I think this is a, has a whole reflection on on the way kids are. I mean, I don't mind rap, and I think it's it's a great form uh, to to exercise in the street. But I, I think to market it as a musical product is is different. You know. I, I don't mind it at all. I'm not putting it down. I, I just think kids want something so easy and, and just laid on the table that's effortless. I mean, the idea of a of, of a kid sort of sitting down at the, a, a musical instrument and learning it properly is just, it doesn't go along with Nintendo Game Boys, you know? <laughs> it's a shame. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody feels very attached to the kind of music yeah. that they grew up with and I, since I grew up with the music that, that Emerson yeah. Palmer played I feel like that's the best music there was and you know people ought to uh, ought to appreciate it yeah but I mean you can see why when it's rammed in your face all the time you got like a a, a, a boy growing up and, it, and he wants to attract a female and he sees on MTV that it's uh, you know you wear your baseball cap back to front and you go skipping and dancing, and you get lots of chicks, you know? <laughs> like, in my time, it was a question of, like, uh, you'd impress the, the opposite sex by, by playing some good jazz runs. And you could actually say, oh, you've been listening to Miles? You know, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more depth there, you know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Which sort of brings, uh, goes right into the next, my next question, which is, can Emerson, Lake and Palmer make inroads into radio and audiences in 1992? We're just about to find out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just wonder if if, uh, if the people will, you know, if you're going to get a lot of people like me who want to see you again, who obviously haven't been able to see you in 15 years or so, or are you going to get new people saying, wow, you know, I've heard of this group and I want to come out and see. For the, for the people who remember uh, your piano spinning and organ stabbing and Carl's rotating drum kit and Greg's uh, standing on an oriental rug, uh, will they be getting the same kind of show this time? You don't have to come and see it. <laughs> We're still working on that. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's, it's still up in the air at this point. 
Yeah. Um, would you tell me a little bit about, about some of the projects you did since uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer broke up, and, and specifically the ones that you're most proud of? Well, I mean, some of the music I wrote for films I'm very proud of. Nighthawks, uh, and a lot of music I did in Italy. That, that stuff I'm going to be remastering soon anyway and releasing. And uh, finally, is there anything else you want me to tell people about uh, you or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer or the record or anything that we haven't touched on? Well, just that ELPN are alive and well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, get ready to do it. And and young, too. I was looking up just in some rock and roll reference books, and you guys are, you guys are young yet. I think everybody has this impression, if you played in the 70s, that you're about 70 years old now. You know? Oh, right. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not true at all. So. Uh, anyway, uh, I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm real excited that you guys are back. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot, Keith. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed. <laughs>